I don't want to read much of Psalm 73, but let's start in 23. Psalm 73, verse 23, to the end of the chapter. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. I want you to hold your place there. We'll pray and then go to Hebrews. Bow with me. Lord, why don't you open the eyes of your people that we might understand and see and live to keep your word. Draw us nearer to you, O Lord. And Lord, would you open the eyes of the lost, those who are far from you, that they may not perish. For the glory of Christ, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. So we're back into Hebrews. I've been excited about getting back here. We're going to finish the rest of this uh, letter or sermon. Uh, we've we've finished our series on the family, and if you've, I just want to encourage and urge anyone if you've missed any of that, you can go back online. And the many different ways of listening and um, and revisit anything you've missed. I know for me, it was a very challenging uh, few weeks, not just because of preparing for that series, but also um, not being hypocritical in home. But I'm thankful to the Lord that he has uh, shown me where I had to become a better husband and father in certain areas and is a continual work. But we find ourselves back in Hebrews 10, and if you recall, I told you weeks ago when we hit chapter 7 that we were about to have an explosion of Jesus in 7, 8, 9, and 10. We were about to see Christ as high priest, as a mediator of a better covenant, and as of the sacrifice himself of that covenant. We were going to see Christ and his work in 7, 8, and 9, and then culminating into 10. But why? Why was the author of Hebrews so intent on giving such depth and such detail about Christ and his work? And I want you to understand is because he was setting you up for the end of chapter 10. He was setting you up to give you an exhortation and a warning. And when I say the word exhortation, I mean emphatic urging 
strong encouragement. He was going to give, and he will give at the end of 10 or the middle of 10, an encouragement to draw near to God. To draw near to God. And that's the driving force of what we're going to see towards the end of 10. And we can't not really look at all the beginning of 10 without thinking about that exhortation that he gives to draw near to God through Christ. But on the flip side, and it's very, I got to thinking about it, you can't really give this exhortation without also giving this warning. So it's draw near to God. I exhort you to draw near to God. But on the flip side, if you don't, the warning comes. If you do not draw near to God, you will be doing the opposite. And you'll see in verse 26, you will go on sinning deliberately. And if you keep on sinning, he'll say that you will have trampled under the underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant and have outraged the Spirit of grace. May God have mercy on us if that's us. He means business in chapter 10. He means business throughout the whole throughout the whole sermon and that's why it's such a hard pill to swallow for some of us as we read this should be for all of us. Basically he's saying in this exhortation and warning you to act like a Christian or you don't. That's what he wants you to know. It's black or white, draw near to God or make a mockery of God and his gospel. That is where we end in chapter 10. There's no middle ground. There's no going one way and then the other or staying in the middle. One brings eternal life, drawing near to God, and the other brings judgment. He'll say at the end of, towards the end of chapter 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. A fearful thing. And you may hear that, you hear may you may hear me say this, and you think, kind of get relaxed and be like, okay, but I'm here. I am drawing near to God. I'm in church, right? This this is a good thing. I'm obviously not of the 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 latter, but of the former. But here's the scariest part about Hebrews and about this warning in chapter 10. The warning is to the people in the pews. It's not to the people of the world. It's to the people in the pews. You either draw near, and I'm quoting his exhortation and warning, you either draw near with a true heart and full assurance, sprinkled clean with an evil from an evil conscience, or you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth. What do we want? And that's a very obvious question, right? We want the former. We want to draw near to God. Because here's the reality. If you are not drawing near to God, you are not a Christian. Now I want now what I just said, you could take it and 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 it could be very dangerous. So I want to clarify and make sure you heard me correctly. What I don't mean when I say if you are not drawing near to God, you're not a Christian. What I don't mean is that in order to be a Christian, you must draw near to God. 
That's works-based salvation. That would be trying to save yourself. And that would only be leading you to heaping up more judgment on yourself than you already have. So what I mean is, is if you are not drawing near to God, then you show that you are not a Christian. Because this is the very point of God saving you. It is the very purpose behind what we're going to see in chapter 10. He has saved you in order that you can come into his presence. Not just when you die, though. We have to understand this. Eternal life doesn't start at death. Eternal life starts in Christ now. When we think about the purpose of salvation of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we have to understand that God has purposefully, willfully, sovereignly, graciously sought you, bought you, changed you, so that you can come into His presence. That is His will, His desire, His plan is to bring you near. And that's why I read Psalm 73 Look at it again. Twenty-seven. Start. Just look at twenty-seven. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you and so he infers right it's obvious but for me it is good to be near god it is good for me to be near god that is now and in in eternity it runs forever for all eternity here's the negative aspect we're done in 73 here, here's, a, here's the negative aspect of being far from God. And it's from Paul in 2 Thessalonians. Let me just read it for you. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of of the Lord and from the glory of his might. To be away from him now is to be away from him for eternity. Now, just so we understand, an eternity in the lake of fire is not necessarily to say that I will not ever be in the presence of God. You will be in the presence of his wrath for eternity. You will be away from the glory of his might. As Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, the author of Hebrews and I exhort you all today to draw near to God. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. But I want you to understand, and we'll see this more in detail, that it isn't just an exhortation to draw near. 
Let's just look at 19 and 20 and 21, and let's see how we are to draw near. Hebrews 10, verse 19, and I'm going to emphatically emphasize the two ways that we are to draw near. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, confidence, where? To enter the holy places. We are encouraged, exhorted to draw near to God confidently. By the blood of Jesus, verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Now, this particulars we've been studying in 7, 8, and 9, and is coming to a head in 10. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, here it is. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So we're drawing near confidently and with a full assurance of faith. Look what it says. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is our goal as we finish as we go through chapter 10 is to be exhorted, to be encouraged, to draw near to God because that's what he saved us for. And in the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they have made it possible. Because if you're a student of the Scriptures, and I hope we all are, we have to understand, if we're a student of the Scriptures and we understand the nature of God and we understand the nature of man, what do we come away with? That this isn't possible. You cannot draw near to God. The the fallen man is separated from the holy, righteous, good God. So as we see this, we have to understand that this drawing near isn't like going near to your family member or your neighbor or even a stranger. This is the creature drawing near to the Creator A peasant drawing near to the king. A murderer drawing near to the judge. And remember what I said. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You remember the story of Esther and the king and Esther? What was his big deal? What was the one thing that everybody knew? And Esther tells us uh, and tells Mordecai. Uh, when Mordecai is trying to convince her to use her position uh, for her uh, kinsmen. What did everyone fear about that king? Here's what what Esther said to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes into the king inside the inner court... Without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death. This is the picture of the throne room of God. You have no right 
being in the presence of Yahweh. He is holy. He is uncommon. We are common. He is righteous. We are wicked. He is faithful. We are unfaithful. He is a, he's creator. We are his creatures. We do not presume that we just draw near to God on our own. We cannot presume that very thing. To do so would bring a righteous, justified judgment. It would bring death. But Esther finishes her statement to Mordecai and says this, But accept the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. I want you to listen. If you are in Christ today, the golden scepter of God has been held out to you. And you, beloved, have access to the presence of God. And because of that, because the scepter has been held out to you, you can come into his presence with confidence and full assurance. And the correct response to that should be shock. All humility. How, Lord, how have you granted that me, a common, wicked, unfaithful creature, can have access to your holy presence? Well, the answer lies in Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10. That's what he's trying to tell us. In 7, 8, 9, and 10. How it is possible that he has held out his scepter and let us into his presence without killing us. Without judgment. So what? Here, here's the outline of our approach to Hebrews 10 now. We're, we're, we're looking for confidence and full assurance of being able to draw near to God. And we're going to see it in chapter 10. Uh, we're going to see the God of the universe, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all acting in one accord, in unity, to open up the way to the throne room, to prepare you to enter, and ultimately bring you into the presence of God. And in, in more detail, this is sort of the, the head, the, the, the summary of how we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit working in Hebrews 10 and in Scripture. Here's, way, here's the way we'll, we'll, we'll kind of condense it into one statement. We will see the will of the Father to set you apart for access to Himself. We will see the work of the Son to make it possible. And we will see the witness of the Spirit of God to testify to you and apply to you the will of the Father and the work of the Son. That is a big statement. Let me repeat it. In chapter 10, we will see the will of the Father who sets you apart and grants you access to His presence. 
We will see the work of the Son to make it possible. And we will see the witness of the Spirit of God to testify to you and apply to you that will of the Father and the work of the Son. We see God in its fullest saving you in Hebrews 10. And you must understand, without any one of them, you are lost. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, let's let's go to 10. And I'm going to walk through quickly the first 10 verses or so as sort of to setting up. And, and also by way of reminder, because there's a bit of redundancy in as as the 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 preacher of Hebrews is starting to stack his his arguments. So start at one. Now remember, we have this we have this uh, this contrast going on between the old and the new. Right, the law uh, and and Christ. Now, what do we see? Verse one: For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, the realities of salvation in Christ, of sin being put on Him and being dealt with, and that He's coming to save us. Those realities. Look what it says. It can never be by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year. What are those? Those are the the sacrifices and offerings of the old. They said that they're continually offered every year. Can they make perfect those who draw near? So there's that first taste of drawing near. You have the people in the old drawing near, attempting to draw near to God... Ultimately, by the law and the sacrifice and offerings of bulls and goats. Well, he asks a question in verse 2. If that was going to make them perfect, he asked, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? He answers his own question in verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now, if you remember in 8 and 9, we're starting to see this theme of purification, of purging, of making perfect, of removal of sin. And he's saying the law... The, the bulls and goats, those offerings, they were not working. They had to continue year by year. They were, not, they were not removing sin from the inner person. So then in verse 5, we have an introduction to a quote from Psalm 40. Verse 5, he says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said... Now, here, here's what I want you to see. He said, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then he quotes Psalm 40. If I'm wrong in this, just shout it. Jesus is not recorded saying these words in the Gospels that we'll read in verses 5, 6, and 7. What he means is, is when God sent forth his Son, this is what it meant. 
And look what he says. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. We're setting up the old, right? Verse 7, Christ then says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So Christ appearing is as if Christ has said these things. And we know that Christ did say, I come to do the will of the Father. Not my own. Verse 8. Then he said above. So here the, the, the preacher's doing what we preachers do real well. And he's just being redundant for the sake of getting the point across. Okay. When he said above, you have n- neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. Now, we've, we've hammered that point home in 8 and 9 as far as the doing away of the first and the establishment of the second. I believe at the end of 8, we see it said, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. But then in verse 10 is where I wanted us to get to and where we'll stop for a minute. Now, well, let's back up and let's make sure we understand that the, the, the preacher in Hebrews is saying that Christ says this. Behold, in verse 9, I have come to do your will. That is the Son speaking to the Father. Behold, I have come to do your will. Now, verse 10. And by that will... We have been sanctified. So that gets us to our first, to seeing our first act, I would, I guess we'll say, the first act of the triune God in their saving sinners. And it is the will of God the Father. The will of God the Father. And what is the will of the Father but to sanctify us or his audience, Christians? Now, we've got to understand sanctify and we've got to understand will before we can really tear this apart. First, sanctify. When when you hear the word sanctify, I want you to always think back to Exodus. And I want you to think back to God telling Moses how to build the tabernacle. Because what dwells in the tabernacle? The presence of God. Right? And where are we trying to draw near to? The presence of God. Alright, so when we see the word sanctify, or maybe your Bible says consecrate, it might even say in a, in a maybe a looser translation to make holy something of that of that sense that is god setting aside an instrument for his worship 
in his presence. So when they built the tabernacle, and I've told you, I've told y'all this before, God told Moses, consecrate this lampstand. Consecrate this um, veil. Consecrate this table. Consecrate these things for the sake of worship in my tabernacle, in my presence. Make them holy. Now, how did he make the candle and the table holy? Because he said they are holy. There was no abracadabra. There was no, let's do, he put them, he told them to do it a certain way, out of what? Obedience. He says, these are mine. Do not use them for anything else. They are holy unto me, God says. That is what it means to sanctify, to set apart for the use of God. God claims it as His. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just to help us see a little bit more the idea of sanctification, of being sanctified. Verse 2, chapter, chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. Keep in mind, set apart for the use of God. God claims it as His. To the church of God. Whose church? Of God. It's His. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified. In Christ Jesus. Called to be saints. Together. Now here's what I want you to understand. The word sanctify and saints are the same word. Just one's a noun and one's a verb. You understand? Let's imagine you're drive you you've you've met a you 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 have a foreigner over to your house to stay for a while and they've never seen a golf course before. And you're driving by a golf course and there are these people swinging sticks. And they go, what are they doing? And you're like, oh, they're golfing. Well, what do you call those people? Golfers. Same word. One's describing an action. The other is describing the name of the people doing the action. Right? That's the same word that is dis- that, that shows those who um, are sanctified and saints. If... You have been sanctified by the will of God. God has made you a sanctified one. And we call them saints. Alright? So, we are holy ones. Because God has said we are His. By His will. Now, what do I mean by will? Let's go back to Hebrews. 
when you take will as its most basic understanding, we mean the word, we mean what we mean is his determination, his choice, his plan, his desire. Here's what I, he, God the Father, determined to set us apart for himself. He determined it. He willed it. And he determined and willed it to do it through the offering of his son. That's what we see in verse 10. And by that will, whose will? God's will that Jesus has come to do. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So we start to see uh, the twofold act of the Father and the Son, but we, we, we'll spit, we won't get to the Son yet. Here, to help us with this word, I want us to look at Ephesians 1. Go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 brings it all together for us real well. The idea of sanctification and God's will. And it brings it about in such a beautiful way that no man could write or think up. Look here when we read this. For the will of God, what he wants to do and how he does it. Okay? The will of God, what he's doing and how he does it. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, so how has he blessed us? The Father has blessed us in Christ. In Christ. Now, verse 4, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Saints. Saints. Sanctified. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Here, 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 hang on to this part. According to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will. And he finishes off with verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. God, in his will, determined, desired to make you holy in his own presence by his son. And he did it for his own glory. Not for yours. But the way that God works, it's to the praise of his glorious grace. But guess what? with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I'm going to say it's a pretty good will. That's a pretty good will. God desired to sanctify you, Christian. He willed to set you apart from the rest of the world in Christ for his purpose, for his good pleasure, and through that will you are given access to draw near to the king and as as we transition as we transition to thinking about the son in this 
Look what he says in verse 7, Ephesians 1. And we have redemption through his blood. There's a, there's a, there's a summary statement for uh, Hebrews 7, 8, and 9 and 10. Through his blood. Now, I want to give a quick thought of some hesitation that you might have, and then I want to say a word on faith, and then we're going to be done. We won't get into the Son and the Spirit today. We will, Lord willing, come back to that next week. But if you hear of God's will and His determining, and you say, what about my will? What about my determination? Don't I have some control over this thing? Well, here's what I want you to think about. To desire control is the exact opposite of faith. To desire control is the exact opposite to faith. To will your way to heaven is to lean on your own understanding. John writes in the first chapter of his gospel, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. If the exhortation, and it is, in chapter 10, is to draw near with God with confidence and full assurance... If you're coming to the throne room on the basis of your determination, be prepared not to see a golden scepter, but a sword. If your basis for entering the throne room of God is your determination and not the the gracious will of God, be prepared not to see a scepter, but his sword. There is no confidence... There is no assurance in your flesh, in your desires, in your will, in its fallenness. But it is only by the will of God that you can be sanctified, called, justified, and glorified. Only by God's will, not yours. It's by His will you can be confident in your drawing near. Because His will cannot be thwarted. What about yours? What about yours? Isaiah speaks on behalf of God when he says this, as he speaks for the Lord. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Okay, he's putting us in our place. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Now that should give you confidence. That should give you full assurance. That you've been accepted on the basis of an eternal, unfailing will of God. Well, that's enough for this morning.
Tonight we're going to talk about faith as we look. We're, we're looking at the, the five solos of the Reformation. We're going to talk about faith alone. There's something I want to say as it pertains to this. And we talked about it Tuesday morning, men. Um, and I'm pretty sure I've probably set it up here before. But when we think about faith, faith is not faith is not strength. Faith is not confidence. Faith is not assurance. But faith is the acknowledgement of your weakness. Faith is an is an acknowledgement and an understanding that you can put no confidence and assurance into yourself. Faith is looking to the one who has what you do not. Who did what you cannot do. And then trusting in the outcome of that work. Not yours. The Father has willed your sanctification because apart from Him, you do not seek God. Romans 3. Your will has been marred by the devastation of sin. He willed your sanctification through the offering of His Son. Because nothing else was sufficient For the purification of your souls and for the redemption of the debt that you owed. He willed the Spirit to write upon your heart and mind His law in order to cause you to walk in His ways. Because without the Spirit writing on your heart the laws of God, you would continue to be driven by the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body, following Satan, following the course of the world, and you would still be a child of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, right? Because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive in Christ Jesus. By the great, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. So let us, let us find confidence in the God who has willed. In the God who has worked. And in the God who is keeping us. For his glory. And is blessing us. In his son. Let us find confidence. Outside of ourselves. And in the triune God. Let's pray. God, your ways are higher than ours. Your words, your actions and deeds are above ours. Father, who has known your mind? Who has been your counselor? Who has given you a gift that you might repay? God, let us all, help us all to just be in the spirit in this humble position of knowing that from you and through you and to you are all things and to you be glory forever and ever. And praise be to your son through whom you have given and covered us
with His perfect blood. And thank You for the Spirit that testifies to this will and to this work and applies it to us. That we are being renewed in our inner man day by day by the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give us confidence and full assurance to draw near to you today and every day thereafter. In Christ's name, amen.